Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And um, I don't have that much to talk about today. That's all right. Just life is life is very busy lately. Uh, you know what I have to talk about? What? Mini Flicks. Which is our uh, the sponsor for this week's yeah, movie journal. Uh, it is the premier streaming site for award-winning short films. Miniflix acquires short films that have premiered at Cannes, Sundance, TIFF, and many more, meaning that you can see great short films available nowhere else online. Miniflix also offers several Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning short films unavailable on, tripical, on typical free video platforms. Pardon me. Uh, and then along with these great short films, Miniflix also has a blog featuring editorials and interviews of short filmmakers. So if you want to check out those articles or uh, uh, any of the dozens of great short films available on Miniflix, just go to the page for this week's movie journal and click on the Miniflix banner at the bottom. Fantastic. There we go. I just wanted to get that out of my, I just wanted it, you know, it was on my mind. You really wanted to, yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I hate when you... It's a real you know, think piece there. Forget about yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You forget to tell someone <laughs> tell someone something important. Exactly. Um, all like right, I, so did, yeah. I didn't want to text you all that later uh-huh. tonight. Be like, this is what I meant to say. I'm sorry. Right. You know. Uh, so we each have three movies to talk about. Yes. Uh, but you have some TV shows. Mm-hmm. I don't. So I feel like you should start. Okay. Uh, now all of my movies are rewatches, um, unfortunately. But uh, the first is. Dan Gilroy's Nightcrawler, which I have not seen in quite a while. Um, this is a film that we watched in my college class this week. We're talking about uh, music, and I thought that James Newton Howard's music for Nightcrawler would uh, was actually kind of controversial. Um, some people really didn't like it. Uh, they thought, like, well, why is it so? Why is it inspiring? Why is it this? Mm, why does it have this quality yeah. to it? It's like, well, it's because this is clearly how the guy Subjective, sees himself. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen the movie in a while. And yeah, I haven't seen it since the theater. I adore it. I really love it for so many reasons. I think the performances are marvelous all around. The music that I just mentioned is great. Um, I forgot about the number of just weird monologues mm-hmm. he has where he's just spewing stuff that he's read or heard somewhere. Um, and it's just beautifully shot. It's Robert uh, Ellswit, mm-hmm. um, which is appropriate because so m- so many of the character beats of this film remind me of There Will Be Blood. Okay. Um, I thought you were going to say they remind you of uh, Rob Reiner's The Short Thing. Well, that too. <laughs> I feel like that goes without saying. Um, you know, I don't want to. I don't. I don't like to be obvious mm-hmm. uh, on the show, David. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's just. You know, you, you're somebody who is uh, in love with Los Angeles, uh-huh. um, and understandably so. And this is a film that I think, as as cynical as it is, I think it also finds real beauty in, uh, you know, after hours Los Angeles. Um, yeah, and as somebody who a lot of it's the valley too. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I do remember thinking that, uh, I'm not sure what Robert Ellswood did with the uh, filters or in color timing, yeah. but like any kind of light, be it a street light or be mm-hmm. it like the light from the shell station or from yeah. the 
Witch Witch Sandwich Place at the <laughs> yeah. corner of Ventura and Laurel, mm-hmm. which is prominently featured if you ever in yes. uh, in the movie. Like it, it really, really pops out of the out of the the night, and it, it does make nighttime the valley look kind of like the playland that he sees it as, and and also. I mean, this is a function of light, but also the way light reflects off of things, specifically cars and windshields. Mm-hmm. It just has this really beautiful shimmering quality. And it's I wouldn't say that the film is really uh, noir in any way, but I think visually it owes a couple of it. I think it owes the way it plays with darkness and light to uh, noir films. I mean, I feel like you, he could have shot this in black and white. I'm glad he didn't. Cause I think his use of color is, is marvelous. Um, but he could have shot a black and white and I feel like it really would have, it would not have seemed out of place, uh, with, you know, mm-hmm. films like, uh, sweet smell of success and that sort of thing. So, uh, it really is just, you know, uh, listeners, if you haven't seen it, uh, check it out. It's, uh, I was very happy to rewatch it and, uh, the students all really responded to it. Uh, because I do think that strange as it may sound, I feel like the film is something of a crowd pleaser. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's not the right word for it, but I don't know. I don't know of anybody. Uh, our editor at large, Scott and I does not care for the film, but, um, but most people I know, whether they be like real film lovers like you and me or casual movie fans mm-hmm. like my students, I think there's something in the movie for everybody. And I think they can something yeah. that people can really respond to. And I was I, I was really happy to watch it. Uh, you know, I still think of that movie every time I put gas in my car because I'm always careful not to get any gasoline <laughs> yeah. on the side of the car because yeah. he chews out Riz Ahmed for doing that because it's bad for the paint. Uh, I think about that every time. Uh, all right, I watched uh, uh, no no rewatches for me. Just all new stuff. I'm in. I'm already in end of the year mode. Good for um, you. And it's only gonna ratchet up um, in the coming weeks. Uh, I watched Brian Singer's or is it Bohemian Rhapsody? Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know he like stopped showing up. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Dexter Fletcher yeah. directed uh, for like two or three weeks, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, of the movie. Um, so yeah, Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, I read, I read your review and I liked it a lot. Okay. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, Rami Malek is really good, um, in terms of being sort of magnetic, uh, and committed. And I do feel like, you know, from just a career standpoint, I feel like a lot more people are going to want to be in the Rami Malek business mm-hmm. after the, after they see this movie. But the movie itself uh, is 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 really really superficial, unfortunately, um, and uh, definitely kind of. I, I mean, I, I I I try not to spend too much time thinking about like. I hate knowing stuff about uh, the production of a movie because mm-hmm. then I start like reading into it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause the movie does feel, uh, uh, uneven and disjointed. And the fact that I know that two different directors, uh, made it uh, is something that I, my mind kept going back to because one, one scene to the next, it feels like a different tone, different pace. Right. Um, the movie definitely doesn't feel like a whole, uh, piece in, in any way. Um, sometimes that's for, sometimes that's great because 
the the movie is more of a musical than I really expected. I don't know why I should have expected it, no. but um, there are full you know songs are performed in full, and that's when Rami Malek shines. And the movie is really really good in those moments. I, I like the performances, uh, but I don't know the stuff in between. I feel like I don't you know I don't know that much about Freddie Mercury, and I could like. I could have written this movie. I feel like yeah. in terms of, in terms of how, how shallow, uh, a portrait of him it is. It definitely has, uh, to use your, the term you coined the Aaron Brockovich, uh, thing where syndrome, everyone, Aaron Brockovich syndrome, where, uh, everyone in the movie knows they're in a movie about Freddie Mercury. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, do you know who plays John Deacon, the bass player? Is it, uh, I know Joseph Mazzello is yeah. in there somewhere. I didn't, I, I spent the whole movie going like, I recognize this guy. Yeah. And I couldn't place it. And I looked it up when I got home and, uh, oh, it's, what's his name? Uh, <laughs> kid with the dinosaurs. But what, what was his name in, in Dress Park? Tim? Tim. Timmy? Tim, Tim Murphy. Yeah. Timothy. Uh, anyway, so he's in it. Um, he was also on the social network. Uh, is that right? Mm-hmm. I don't remember that. Uh, yeah, I, I, um, I definitely. So, a couple things I'll say. One, and I said this in in the review that you read. Um, if you are the kind of person who tends to base their opinion on a movie on how it ends, how well it ends, you'll probably like this movie more than I did because mm-hmm. it builds up to like it. It builds up to the Live Aid performance in 1985, yeah. and then the last like probably like 12 minutes of the movie is just them performing it at live aid and it's fucking great. It's, yeah. it's really, really awesome. Um, and I could definitely see someone like w- walking out of the theater being like, Oh, it was great because you, yeah. you end on some, uh, on a high note, but it, it, it's so meandering, uh, and thin getting there. And here's another, this will be, um, this will tell you what kind of movie this is. Mike Myers is in the movie. Okay. Um, and oh, already. Yes. Okay. Th- if you're wondering, I, if you're saying, I wonder if the movie, the movie, Brian Singer probably showed too much restraint to have Mike Myers' mm. character talk about Bohemian Rhapsody in a way that assumes you've seen Wayne's World. No, there's no restraint. That is definitely something that happens in the movie. There's, oh. a, there's a, a, there's a, I get, I, I want to, I guess it's a joke, but it's only a joke because the movie assumes you've seen Wayne's World and you know about the Bohemian Rhapsody sequence in that. Uh, that's the kind of movie we're talking about here, unfortunately. Um, Isn't it? But it's such a standard thing. I'm Not that, but right. what you've been saying, I mean, I feel like 80% of biopics are exactly as you describe them, where it can be boiled down to a really good committed lead performance, uh-huh. and the rest of it is either it overly canonizes the the subject or yeah. it goes the other way and does warts and all and we completely forget why we like this person at all and it's it's one or the others like it you come to i've come to realize just how difficult it can be to make an actually good which, effective biopic which is why there's a movie that came out a few years ago that i liked when i saw it the more i think about it the more i think it's better it's it gets better and better every time i i i, I think about it and that's love and mercy mm-hmm. love and mercy really does it it had a, a unique approach to the biopic by having yeah. two different actors play him at two different ages, um, but not consecutively, you know, yeah. jumping back and forth. Uh, and it does what you're talking about. It, it's, it's not a hagiography, but it also is not, uh, 
punishing. Right. And it also is a movie that gives a lot of, gives you a real sense of not how good the music was, but what went into creating yeah. uh, the music that Brian Williams wrote and played and recorded. Uh, uh, Brian Wilson, by the way, uh, not Brian Williams. Brian well, maybe he would a, claim to have recorded it. <laughs> Wait, who's Brian Williams? Is the guy that I work with? I don't know. Oh. Is there a <laughs> oh, famous Brian Williams? Yeah, he's uh, right. Isn't he the the NBC anchor who oh, made right. up all that stuff? Yes, that Brian Williams <laughs> worked out well. I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's it. What, what did you What did you watch? So next up was something that I watched. Uh, so along with teaching this college class, I also uh, teach various middle schoolers and it being Halloween week, I was going to, it's like, I'm done with this production stuff. Mm -hmm. All right. It's lecture time. And I'm going to be lecturing these kids about the history of horror. And they were very excited about it with a couple of exceptions who thought some of the imagery that I showed them was, uh, scary. Uh, understandably. So supposed to be right. Exactly. Exactly. Admittedly, they didn't sign up for it, but still, uh, you know, uh, time to grow up. Uh, so by the, by the time I get to, you know, showing them stills from the ring and saw, um, nothing wrong, nothing gross. Yeah. Uh, I decided like, okay, well now we're actually going to watch something and we watched the Disney animated legend of sleepy hollow, um, Mm. narrated by Bing Crosby. Mm. Uh, Did you ever watch it? No, it's, it's great. Okay. It's only, it's about 30 minutes long. Um, and it's, there are no, I mean, nobody really, they do write some original songs, uh, but it's very much like, uh, the, what is it? Chuck Jones, how the Grinch stole Christmas where, okay. where Boris Karloff just does everything except for, I guess, little Cindy Lou who or whatever, but, uh, Bor- there's narration. And then he also does the voice of mm-hmm. the Grinch. So Bing Crosby does the narration, much of it lifted directly from Washington Irving. You know where else Boris Karloff doesn't do? He doesn't sing the. Oh, that's new, true. Because that guy's name is Thurl Ravenscroft. Ravenscroft. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, My favorite Hunger Games character. Yeah, it's it's insane. And what's <laughs> more is you hear that voice. It's like, well, there's only one name that could go with that, obviously. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so. Um, what is Thurl short for, I, <laughs> do you think? Thurlston? Thurlward. <laughs> um so his friends call him Thurley, obviously. Um, so yeah. And so it, it's, uh, it's wonderfully narrated. Bing Crosby really, really brings like some levity to it. But then also when things turn dark, uh, and frightening, he's able to capture that mm-hmm. as well. And it's just beautifully animated. It's that I don't remember exactly when it was made. I think like the sixties or seventies, no, it must've been earlier than that. If Bing Crosby's involved. So maybe the fifties. Um, and so, but Ichabod Crane is just like this. They just went with Washington Irving's description of this stork looking guy and really run with it. Um, and then as he, and the film is structured really well, it's, it's 30 minutes long. The first 10 minutes is all set up, uh, of Ichabod and the town and all that sort of thing. The second, uh, section is all about his rivalry with this character Brom Bones uh, for the hand of fair Katrina and then the last third is all like the fateful night where he encounters the headless horseman and 
it's it's fascinating because it reminded me of a uh, a silent film. Of course, we're hearing words throughout, but Ichabod is never given a voice and he never really talks. And so we have to just go by his face and his and his uh, bodily movements. But it's all animated, but it's it's every bit as expressive and enjoyable as anything that, you know, Buster Keaton, not that he was very expressive, but like Charlie Chaplin or any of those silent comedians did. And it's it's the music is really good. The animation is great. And just the character design and the character performances are really solid. And uh, and, you know, my students enjoyed it. I enjoyed watching it. I grew up watching it and loved it. Hmm. Um, And it's just, you know, it's 30 minutes long. Uh, If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's it's a lot of fun. Uh, All right. So next up is a movie that I know you will be excited to see. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Not the other side of the wind. I haven't seen the other side of the wind yet, but I did see coming up. um, They'll love me when I'm dead. Oh, good. Morgan Neville documentary. uh, That is sort of a uh, it's sort of being released, I guess, by Netflix as a companion piece to The Other Side of the Wind. Yeah. It's a movie that it's about the making and unmaking of the movie. But And so I was kind of afraid that it was, that this was just going to be like a, a DVD special feature. Right. No, this is a movie all its own. Mm-hmm. Um, and I... Uh, Morgan Neville is a director that I... A part of me, like the snobbish part of me feels guilty about how much I like his movies, I think. Why? Because I feel like... His style is very much the like post Michael Moore, Morgan Spurlock type mm-hmm. of like, uh, this is a documentary, but it's fun and lively and clever. And there's like, yeah, um, like he does a thing repeatedly in the love me when I'm dead, where one of the interview subjects of which there are many, many, um, uh, will, will raise a question and then he'll use, a clip of Orson Welles in one of his movies saying something as, as if Orson Welles or one of his characters is addressing the question that was just raised. Mm-hmm. Something that happens multiple times. It's interesting, but it also, it, it gives, it, it does feed into this idea of like, is Morgan Neville just being clever here? You know what I mean? Like, is that, is it insightful or is it just clever? I would venture to say it's him being clever, but you know, I mean, there are plenty of books written about Wells, and then there's This is Orson Wells, which is him with Bogdanovich, and it's a mm-hmm. Q&A, you know, an extended interview, basically, or a series of interviews. And in it, he says that he believes that uh, a director's work should speak for him, speak for itself. Like, if you want to know something about a director, right. you should watch his movies. Uh, and so it's like, okay, maybe Morgan Neville chose yeah. that, uh, but uh, it also feels a little bit clever to me. Yeah, and so I... There's a part of me when I'm watching a Morgan, Morgan Neville movie that is repeatedly taken out of the movie because I'm thinking about the choice that he made too much because it feels like a self-conscious choice. Mm-hmm. That said, of all the people that I've, uh, you know, that that are making documentaries in this style, which is a lot of them now, I think Morgan Neville might be the best at it. Uh, I, you know, I, I really tend to like his movies. I really liked best of enemies i liked uh mm-hmm. won't you be my neighbor earlier this year and i like this one i think partially because um the movie is willing to if not be openly critical of wells it definitely leaves room for you to be critical sure it's not a movie that is like so many we talked about when we did the fall movie preview with scott and julie there were so many movies coming out this like documentaries like quincy or whatever coming out this year yeah. bad reputation the joan jet one you know um that 
you know, I haven't seen those, but we were talking about those type of movies and how often they don't give you any room to dislike no. the person. RBG was one this year. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm a fan of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but I didn't need to t- sit there for a hundred minutes right. and just be told over and over again how great she is and have no like uh, room for that. And that's not what the love me when I'm dead is. There is some like, you know, some questioning of maybe, you know, yeah, it sucks how many of his movies went unfinished and how many got taken away from him by different people. But, you know, the, the movie doesn't bring this up specifically, but there's a saying that I love or a little, I guess it's a saying which is that if you meet an asshole in the morning, you met an asshole. If you meet assholes all day long, you're the asshole. Yeah, and I so did, yeah. a part of the, the movie does kind of open like, yeah, it sucks this happened, but it kept happening to him. Maybe <laughs> yeah. I was a little bit responsible for that. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge Wells fan. Um, and I've read at this point a number of biographies uh, about him and a number of interviews uh, that he gave. Not that I mean his interviews were by far the least reliable aspect, right. <laughs> uh, but um, but yeah, I do think that he was a very not merely a flawed person, but I think he was also a very flawed filmmaker in so as far as his process. Um, I think his movies are marvelous mm-hmm. and and just so unique but you know something as i was reading the most recent simon callow biography which is the third one which is the third one um but not the I, final one not the final one because i think this one this one ended with the release of chimes at midnight and okay. so there's still movies that he made after that and his later the stages of his later life, you know, doing commercials and that sort of thing. Um, I predict that that one's going to be sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one really covers a lot of his, you know, misbegotten productions. And it really, and I think this is Simon Callow sort of theorizing that uh, Wells was so in love with creating mm-hmm. and maybe not quite so in love with his creations like he was he was fine when the movies were done but i think he was so invigorated at just perpetually creating mm-hmm. that it might explain why he shot more stuff than he finished yeah um you know and so on one hand that's kind of when he was a kid and not as a kid, but like when he first came to Hollywood and, and was working in film, he said, Oh, it's the greatest train set uh, a boy could ever have. And she's like, okay, yeah, it's something you play with and it's mm-hmm. something you perpetually play with. At no point does a little boy like play with a train set and say like, all right, we are finished, you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it's, it, I feel like that's kind of how Orson Welles was even into his later years. Yeah. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it certainly explains a lot. And I think, as tra- Amberson's was a full on tragedy. That is people, that is the studio targeting him. But yeah. a lot of things beyond that but it's was also a masterpiece. Like even yeah, with them oh, taking it away, Magnus Amberson's yeah. is one of the greatest movies ever made. And even the, even the, the compromised studio cut of touch of evil is as- astonishing. I mean, you can't hide his brilliance, but a lot of it, could have been slightly more easily avoided 
if he had been a little bit different, if he had been, cause that's the thing. He was often so desperate to get money to make his movies that he went to the wrong people, uh, and trusted the wrong people and then treated them poorly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in the me- and in the meantime, he didn't seem to always know exactly what he wanted. I feel like the closest comparison is somebody like a Terrence Malick who just kind of shoots and shoots and then figures out what he, what he wants. Yeah. Um, and I feel like the more you find out about Wells, the more you realize this is definitely that he kind of certainly as he went on, that was kind of how he made movies. Well, uh, yeah, the movies, uh, the movies good. It's a lot of fun. Uh, maybe, maybe you want to watch, uh, the other side of the wind as if I didn't know already. Um, yeah. and yeah, there are the, the number of people that he got, that, that he interviews is yeah. insane. And he also doesn't always identify all of them. Hmm. Uh, like there aren't like, yeah, uh, this is so-and-so unless it's like really necessary for you to know. So I guess like, I guess Peter Jason is in the other side of the wind yeah, he because is. he's one of the people who interviewed that I, I, I could, I, um, yeah, jump to that conclusion, but uh, the movie doesn't say that. The mm-hmm. movie doesn't say this is actor Peter Jason who's in the other side of the wind. But yeah. uh, sometimes it does uh, when there's someone who's not famous. Like there's a there's a young woman at the time of making the other side of the wind who that's that's her only role, so it definitely identifies her. Right. There's no other reason you would know who that is. But like Peter Bogdanovich, obviously, uh, Rich Little, um, because uh, here's one thing I learned about the making of the other side of the wind. Rich Little was initially cast in the part that Peter Bogdanovich ended up playing. Hmm. Peter Bogdanovich plays two characters in the movies that I movie that I think because he replaced Rich Little, they kind of made it them. He had already shot stuff as a different character and they made it the same character, I think. Or Wells just decided, no, it's the same guy now. We're putting these characters together. Sounds about but right. Because like Rich Little was hired to play this and his version of the story is... I told Orson Welles I had until then, and then I had the club dates. I have to be done, and Orson mm-hmm. Welles had no interest in, like you're saying, ever stopping shooting. Yeah. So at a certain point, Rich Little was just like, I have to leave, and yeah. they couldn't finish the movie, so they ended up reshooting everything with Peter Bogdanovich uh, in the Rich Little role. Um, uh, but of course, Orson Welles' version of the story was, uh, uh, yeah. this is a disaster, <laughs> Rich Little can't act, we have to do something. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's uh, that's just one of the many, many fun stories. Also, this has nothing to do with anything, but Orson Welles has a, there's a, there's a quote from Orson Welles in the movie that is now going to be one of my favorite go-to quotes, but the city of Los Angeles, uh, in which Orson Welles apparently said, Los Angeles is the only city where all roads lead to the airport. Uh, <laughs> and I, I love that because that's something that I, something that I love about Los Angeles as opposed to a place like Chicago or, or New York. I've only visited. I haven't lived in, uh, like when you're in a city like Chicago or New York or Paris, like, the city kind of makes you feel like you're a part of something. Mm-hmm. Los Angeles is the opposite. Los Angeles is telling you, go ahead, leave. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care if I do. Get out of here. You're Pl- nothing. You're plenty not more of you will show up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like Orson Welles said that as a, because he didn't like Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, but I, I like that quote because it <laughs> sort of encapsulates what I do like about Los Angeles is that uh, it's a beautiful place. The weather's beautiful. Um, it's a lot of but, turnover. Uh, and yeah, and the and the city doesn't care about you, which is something that is so that I I feel comfortable. And I, I guess that could be oddly freeing. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the city's not blowing any smoke up your ass. I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, Certain people within the city probably are, but <laughs> yeah, the city yeah, itself. No, no, yeah, that's that's the difference is making drawing a line between Los Angeles and 
uh, certain Angelino. Right. Anyway, we've gotten off topic. What did you see? Okay. Uh, I talk about this movie once a year cause I watch it once a year. Okay. It is a, it is a Halloween staple for me and my wife. It is the documentary, the American scream. Oh, fun. Uh, it's, it, we, we barely got, got it and we watched it on Halloween night. Oh. Um, and, Did uh, you get in your neighborhood? Yeah. Cool. Like a lot. Uh, we, we were out of town last Halloween and so, uh, we didn't know exactly how many trick or treaters we were going to get, uh, a whole bunch and it was really great and yeah. so very, very adorable. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, you've seen the American scream. I've talked about it on here before. Uh, but I think this time because I, I watched that one documentary that is on, uh, Netflix called haunters. Haunters, yeah. Um, which is interesting in its own way, but it's just not, it's just such an unpleasant film and that's fine. It's not, that's not a failure. Uh Um, but that is, that's a movie about like people that there might actually be something wrong with. There's a difference between passion and obsession. Uh There's a fine line, but I think that one is about obsession. Whereas I do think that the American scream is about genuine passion that occasionally dips into obsession, but it stays, as passion. Do you think that's a, do you think that's a question of the subjects being different or just the filmmakers approach to them? It could be, it could be either one or both. Um, but I think, but I just, I have, I have so much respect for the structure of the American scream. And again, I'm, I'm repeating myself because I probably said the exact same thing (laughs) last year, which is just when you think you understand these people and and just when you start to condemn them, like the main guy, Victor, who is the most obsessive, to go mm-hmm. back to that term, who's the most obsessive about his home haunt, and you see like, wow, he, his family is living in a house none of them wanted to live in because it was a good trick-or-treat neighborhood, which is what he wanted, you know? And like, when you see the compromises that he's more than willing to make, but they have to make to accommodate his hobby, his passion, um, you just, when you think like this guy's kind of a jerk, uh, and he still, and he still is. That's when the, the director, Michael, uh, Michael Paul Michael Stevenson or Michael Paul Stevenson. I don't remember. Anyway, uh, the kid from Troll Two. Anyway, uh, he brings in elements of Victor's past, and he was raised as like a Branch Davidian, and he was not. He did not celebrate Christmas, uh, birthdays, certainly not Halloween. He was just deprived of all of this stuff, and so his kids and his wife, all of them acknowledge like, yeah, I think he might be making up for lost time (laughs) and maybe putting a lot of himself into it. And it just, I love when a movie does that is it a lot, because I think we, when we're watching something that takes place, fictional or otherwise, we're watching something, it's two hours. It's going to, it's, it forces us to put characters in a box. And I like any movie that takes that instinct and then pulls the box away just for a moment, just to show, no, there's more to it than you think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's, it's really a, a brilliantly done film. Um, now the movie ends with that guy 
opening yes. an actual haunted house. Yes. Have you looked up to see how I that ha- did? I have, yes. Um, and it did very well for a few years. I think they... I think they like lost their lease, so they had to go somewhere else. Um, but yeah, it was it it because the film came out in 2012. I think the events covered 2011, and yeah, I I looked it up. Yeah, of course, frequently. Um, and yeah, it was called Ghoulie Manor, and uh, and it lasted for a while. Have you been? There's a very popular home haunt in Burbank. Okay. Have you? I my wife and I tried to go this year. The line is insane uh no i would not no i did not do that um yeah maybe next year i'll try to plan it and go maybe earlier in the month because we tried to go like the sunday before halloween and it was just like it was the line it's it's a suburban neighborhood and the line was just all the way down the block uh i found myself in rancho cucamonga today Mm -hmm. and i was dry i uh got off the freeway cause I needed to get gas somewhere and I passed by a house that clearly had been one of those. Like oh. they had a huge archway and they had, you know, a very, their yard looked like a graveyard and all that sort of thing. And it was just like, okay, this, there was some genuine construction that went into this. Um, and I was like, Oh man, I, it would have been awesome to see last night. So yeah, I, I really love, uh, love the film. All right. Final movie for me. Um, Another one I uh, am sad to say, uh, because I was looking forward to it, sad to say uh, it disappointed me, Peter Farrelly's Green Book, Mm. um, starring Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali. It's based on a true story about a... um, Or as uh, the trailers say, based on a true friendship, which made me... Is that true? Yeah, which made me want to just go to sleep. Yeah, Um, I think you win. Mahershala Ali plays uh, Don Shirley, who is a, a... uh, a, a pianist, jazz pianist, I guess, or I don't know if jazz is the right word. He had a trio that was uh, uh, popular with the, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the, I don't know. The well-to-dos? Yeah, the well-to-dos. The, the, the muckety-mucks? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and he uh, embarked on a tour of early 60s Deep South. Mm-hmm. Um, which um, posed certain threats for him as a black man. And so he hired uh, basically a bouncer from the Copacabana to be his driver slash security. And that's who Viggo Mortensen uh, plays. And Viggo Mortensen is really, really laying on the forget about it, yeah. like New York accent type thing. When I saw uh, the trailer, I was like, this is not, I feel I think of Viggo, Viggo Mortensen as a guy who's constantly trying to kind of undercut stereotypes right. and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, this this did seem like an odd uh, role for him, um, but he is uh, he is very committed, and they're both they're both very good. But I think uh, the movie is so full of shit in so many ways. <laughs> it has so many. Uh, uh, it, it's um, it's. Essentially, forty-eight hours meets planes, trains, and automobiles because it's like okay. uh, unlikely friends on a road trip, but also yeah. there's the race element. Is what yeah. I mean. So there's um, a Driving Miss Daisy in there as well. I, you know, I've never seen Driving Miss Daisy, so it's I don't, not bad. Yeah, um, I, I didn't. I thought that would probably be a good comparison, but not having seen it, it I right. felt disingenuous. Um, but every moment you might imagine is in this kind of movie is is there uh to the point where i think it's kind of insulting to be honest um the way that it deals with questions of uh 
of, of race are really, uh, a little too pat and a little too safe and a little too taking the position that this is the way things were, you know, you know what I'm saying? Right. Right. Uh, and also, yeah, I I don't want to give plot points away, but, um, also the, the, the way the movie treats like, um, racism in the South versus racism in, in the North is, I think, uh, I, I think a little too, it lets the North off a little too easy. Sure. Um, and, and yeah, I, I feel like there are so many examples that I could give, but I don't want to be spoiling specific scenes because I know people would be bothered. So I, I feel like I'm dancing around certain things, but there are a lot of scenes, um, that just just feel like they were made for uh i don't know i've made for tv but now tv's good so um there's there's a very specific i found in there are movies that come out that are have a very mainstream sensibility they have a polish to them mm-hmm. but they deal with race and they're they're all solid C pluses, maybe B minuses. Movies like The Blind Side. Okay. Honestly, I think Hidden Figures is that. Oh, I where love Hidden Figures. There's, I think that's I think that one rises to a B for me. Okay, but it's the kind of thing where the characters always have. They don't. They talk the way movie people talk. Uh, movie characters sure. talk. You yeah. know, like. They have no, they have no interest in trying to be like gritty reality, and that's not a bad thing. But this feels like it. But I it's think one the difference with hidden figures is that it's like it's like melodrama, so they're talking and acting like sure. movie characters. But I think what lies underneath it is very real and honest. Sure, and, and you're saying this is does not I'm feel that this way. This is not. It okay. feels dishonest. Um, uh, I mean, you know, Mahershala Ali's character is very very reserved. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you think he eventually, it, it, you know, uh, do you, think he, uh, do you think he eventually breaks down and has a big rousing speech? And do you think maybe he has that speech outdoors in the rain? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what happens. Um, uh, Linda Cardellini plays Viggo Mortensen's wife, which I, I can't, I don't, I'm so sick. I, I feel like Hollywood wants me to say like, yeah, no, 20 year age differences. That's the way it is. But it's like, no, I want, what is the backstory here? Why is this guy married? Why, why is she married to him? Yeah. He's just some mook, you know, like, yeah. he's not a movie star. Um, <laughs> and it's like, I feel like when are we going to get, when are we going to have people in relationships in big Hollywood movies that are the same fucking age? You know, um, you know, I got two words for you. <laughs> Enough said. Uh, yeah, I'm talking about the movie actually. Uh, but there was, uh, yeah, I remember, uh, I like Daniel Craig, uh, pointed this out cause someone said in one of the recent bond, the Daniel Craig bond movies, um, I guess he like hooks up with Monica Bellucci mm-hmm. and some interviewer said like, um, you know, it's rare for bond to hook up with, uh, I don't know if he, the interviewer used the term hook up, but to get together with an, what the interview said, an older woman. And Daniel Craig was like, no, Monica Blue, she's not an older woman. She's a woman Bond's own age. Yeah. Uh, and that's, but that's how rare it is that the idea of if Viggo Mortensen, who's probably 50, no. early fifties, probably. Um, I'm guessing. Yeah. I'd say that's about maybe late forties. Um, like it would be, I guess, more conspicuous to most people 
if he were married to a woman his age in the movie. Whereas Linda Cardellini, who's like my age. Yeah. Right. Um, it's just, I, I don't get it. I, I, I can't, I can't get past it. Do you think it's a, it, it, it's an instance of Hollywood people being so cut off from the rest of the world? Like my wife is a year younger than I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, your wife is almost two years older than I almost two years older. Okay. So yeah, there's a bit of a, there's a bit of a swing one way or another, but it's not much. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of people I know, and then my, uh, are either the same age or there's one or two years off. Maybe yeah. Yeah. my parents, there's a one year difference. Like it, the, again, at this point I'm, I'm 36. I've known a lot of married people and it's always yeah. that one to two years. Yeah. But I do think my that dad honestly was three months older than my mom. Yeah. It's, I think that's how it is for 98% of people. <laughs> yeah. But in Hollywood, eh, the, the idea of like kind of the, the older guy who maybe like the older executive or something like that, that divorced his wife and now is looking for like some trophy. Like yeah. I feel like it's much more common. I might be speaking in spare in stereotypes, but like, I think it's more common here. And so it's not seen as weird at all. Yeah. But I mean like this guy's not supposed to be in a second marriage. So when I, suddenly I'm thinking like, so where's the story with this guy in this from this very traditional Italian Catholic yeah, neighborhood? Where like, did he find? Yeah. He, but like, was he, so he was just single until he was like 40. Like, I don't know. Like, or not single, but like, not married. Right. I mean, he has, he doesn't have kids from a previous marriage. He's like, what? Uh, yeah. He wasn't, he wasn't, uh, marrying this woman when she was 15, you yeah. know? So he probably waited a while and it's like, was I, it a buddy's kid sister or something? Like, yeah. I didn't even mean to bring that up. Cause I was going to, what I was going to bring up is the Linda Cardellini, uh, whom I normally like, but this is a nothing role. Um, when he, you know, cause it's like two months away on the mm-hmm. road and when he comes back in, uh, just in time for Christmas Eve dinner, just in time. Um, this is the plane change automobiles type thing. Yeah. That's Thanksgiving, but you know, uh, and the whole family's there and they're like, Tony, Hey, you know, and he likes gives a hug and then he like breaks to the crowd and standing at the other end of the room is his wife, Melinda Cardellini. And she just like smiles and shakes her head. And I'm like, what is she shaking her head at? Go fucking hug your husband. You haven't seen in two months. Sounds but, awful. I <laughs> feel <laughs> like I'm talking myself into liking the movie even less than I did when I, yeah. when I left the theater, because here's the thing. It, you've got two great actors, you know, most of it's a two hander. And also you've got a director who is well-versed in comedy. Yeah. And when they play off each other, there's a lot of this movie that is really funny. I have no doubt. Um, that's when it's at its best is when it's just being, being funny. Uh, but every, every emotional beat or every sort of thematic turn, uh, is, is really lazy. Given, the 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 larger racial conversation of the of the moment right now um do you feel like this movie's going to play or do you think people are going to consider it too too easy uh it depends on which people i think the people i follow on twitter are yeah not going to like it sure and i feel like this is like i'm saying dishonest yeah um but you know remember last year there were people not people that we tend to talk to, but there are a lot of people who are like, Oh, three billboards is doing great because it's a hashtag me too type movie because it's the most superficial take in the world. Yeah. It's like, Oh, because it's about an angry woman, I guess. Yeah. But it's like, so people who think more deeply about movies did not feel that way. Right. But 
I do think I honestly think part of the of three billboards success was people thinking about me too and those kind of issues in the most superficial terms possible. Well, when so I you do have, wonder if people, uh, there might be a lot of people who say like, Oh, green book. It's the, uh, you know, it's the, it's movie, the movie we need our, right but now. Yeah, yeah. For our divisive times, it's going to bring us together. Yeah. Um, because they're only looking at the absolute surface and not looking at how it, uh, actually might reinforce some of the bad things because it's the movie saying like, uh, look how easy this is. So right. How come on guys. This is. Yeah. It's not rocket science. That was hidden figures. <laughs> <laughs> All uh, right. Uh, but in, yeah. In regards to three billboards. Yeah. It's, you're absolutely right. And just as it turns out, when a movie is so unfocused, uh, anything, anytime you squint, whatever you see sounds right. Uh, anyway. Um, okay. okay. Um, I've been watching some TV. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I might have to eat my words because Linda Carlini is older than I thought she was. Oh, all right. Um, let's see. What, what would what would Pardo oh, wow. say in this instance? But also, Morrison is, is older than I thought he was. Really? Uh, but still, it's a closer. Okay, Linda Carlini is 43. Oh, I would have thought she was like 37. I guess I'd say yeah, that would be my guess. Uh, Viggo Mortensen is 60 years old. Seriously? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, trying to think what, yeah, so uh, I'm trying to think I mean, what Jimmy Pardo would say in this situation. I don't know what he would say. <laughs> he would always, he would guess at somebody's age. Like if, I, if I'm Pardo and I'm talking to you okay. and just like, uh, like oh, I see what, what, what are you 43? Yeah. And I say, no, I'm 36. Oh, you, oh, you look like shit. I thought you were 43. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So vegan Martinson looks great. Yeah. Uh, and so does Linda Carlini. Yeah, they, they both, both look great. They were yeah. younger, but I guess okay. So sixty to forty-three, it's still weird to me. But it's it, a seventeen-year difference. Yeah, at that's, that age, that's notable. If it were a second marriage, I would say that's close enough that I would sure. be okay with it. But it, I, it still raises the questions of what were their early lives like why was he not married to her for so long in this and i guess it comes movie? down to like how do they read i mean he reads younger uh-huh. but i guess so does, so she. does she so yeah, yeah. it's wow can't believe Lena carlini's in her 40s man we are she... getting so i like i yeah i try not to be the, like to do that i hate that when someone's like oh want to feel old or whatever like uh, but every once in a while, something will come uh, come along like that. Uh, yeah, it's you, my, you give me a look. It's my whole life right now. Oh, you, you want to feel old? Young people like teach people half your age, and then and then ask them what's an old movie. Oh yeah, yeah. Cool. Back to the Future. That's uh, what they'll say, huh? But that's so fun. Like because Back to the Future, like. What, when when do they think the fifties is then? Because back to the future, goes oh, back yeah. to the fifties. He might might as well be going back to the might as well be Bill and Ted. Yeah, <laughs> you know he's <laughs> picking up beef oven. Yeah, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Something else about that. I don't know. I, I I try to I try to have perspective on that. Like, yeah, time has passed. Yeah, I know time passes. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I guess the idea that someone who's Someone who, uh, um, like there are people who can drive cars that weren't alive when nine eleven happened. That sort of thing is, yes. is, is, is uh, I guess, something that you don't think about very often. Yes. Um, huge moments like that. And I'm sure for some people, like explaining 
like the Kennedy assassination to to people our age or even a little bit older than than we yeah, were. That's you know? a good point because sometimes I think about stuff that happened before I was born that I've always thought of as happening like way in the past, and I realized like yeah. oh, that was only like Kent State wasn't that long before yeah. I was born. Yeah, Watergate wasn't yeah. was only eight years before I was born. You know, yeah, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, yeah, because that's. You know, I was thinking. I think I think we talked about this at some point in the podcast. Um, between what's the last Timothy Dalton Bond movie? Is it Living Daylights? Living Daylights, I think. So between Living Daylights and GoldenEye, it's only like six years, right? Yeah. But to me, because it was the six years when I went from being like seven to thirteen, right? I thought of James Bond as something like that was old. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. And so it like now, if you go six years between in a franchise like it's longer than normal but it's still like i was an adult then an adult now so it's like okay there's a new bond whereas when i was a kid when i heard about goldeneye i was like oh they're bringing back james bond they're reviving james bond yeah because it seemed like it was so far in the past it was like six years i'm sure for some people uh, you know the the seven years between batman and robin and batman begins you know for for people our age that's I'm, I go from being a teenager to in my twenties, but for some people that were, uh, that were older, I'm sure they were just like, Oh, they're okay. Batman, whatever. I guess the, <laughs> yeah. it's like they screwed it up. There was a several years in between and now Batman's just back, you know? Uh, right, right. But yeah. for, for people our age, it's like, all right, the show my guy ruined it for the, they had to wait seven whole years, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it seemed yeah. like a much bigger deal at the time. Yeah. Oh man, I was just thinking about that same thing because there's, uh, I wanted like there's a new Halloween movie out. Yes. The last Halloween movie was Rob Zombie's Halloween Two. That was almost a decade ago. Really? Yeah. It was like 2009. There was nothing in between then and this one. I guess not. In Halloween. Yeah. No. Um. Yeah. So that's uh. Yeah, that's uh, time collapses. Things seem closer as yeah. you get older, and uh, it's scary. Um, I, was anyway, busy, I was busy making other plans, and motherfucker, yeah. life happened. The point of this is that Linda Carlini is beautiful. Yeah. Uh, okay, so real quick, talk about, uh, that's what I got out of it. Um, so here are the TV shows I've been watching. Uh, I watched Survivor, of course. And listeners, I'm sorry that we didn't have an episode last week. It was very busy. Uh, this An week, sort of worth playing for. Of your, uh, yes, thank your you. Survivor podcast. Uh, yeah, Jen and I will try to record it tomorrow. I'm not sure if that's going to happen, but we'll do our best. Um, and uh, it's a good season. It's a it's a very good season, and I'm really I'm really fascinated with who is going home. Uh, in, and it, it, I wouldn't, I don't think I would, I would consider this a particularly strategic season, except people are being voted out for strategic reasons. Mm. But of the people that are still around, I don't see that much intense strategizing. Um, but what I also thought was interesting and you'll find, and I think you'll respond to this. So Mike White is on the season yeah, and uh, he was on the losing tribe and there were only four people. And so one of the four needed to go home. And so by this time he's formed a bond with all of them. And so in a confessional, now he did not bring up amazing race, but Jen and I did, as we were talking about it, you know, he actually was brought to tears, the idea of having to get rid of one of these Mm -hmm. people. And I thought like, 
Yeah, that's a big difference between Survivor and The Amazing Race. You can you can sort of you can sort of form alliances with other teams on The Amazing Race and that sort of thing, but they it's never very, last very long. They never last very long, and there's only so much you can do. It's right. more about helping other people, and you can also, I guess, you can U-turn somebody, and if they go out, then yeah, maybe it's because you did it. But people have overcome U-turns before. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like in Survivor, if you vote someone out, there's no way they can overturn that. Uh, well, there's Redemption uh, Island, uh, not this season. Oh. Um, is, that, the, is that what it's called, Redemption Island? Resurrection yeah, Island. Redemption Island. Yes. Um, and so, so this, like, you have such, you have a much more active part in the elimination of somebody else as opposed to amazing race. And so, uh, and Mike having now experienced both and like, I don't recall him like really crying during amazing race, except maybe like dealing with his father and stuff like that. But crying as a function of the game itself, I feel like it, he makes for an interesting common denominator with which I can compare the two shows. Um, and incidentally, I really miss amazing race and I'd like to, I'd like to see it again. I think it's coming back next season, but now they just do one a year as opposed to the yeah. two a year there used to be which is a bummer yeah but uh, what else so um i've been listening to uh audiobooks because i have a commute now and i listened to one called top of the rock which is all about the rise and fall of must see tv hmm. um and it was fascinating just fascinating and it got me thinking about so rock here is rockefeller center i would assume so yes um you haven't got to that part yet no i listened to the whole thing okay. but they don't reference the title at all and okay. so i'm assuming that that's what it is anyway and it was just it's it's fascinating and it just got me wanting to watch all of those shows again um but aside from cheers the big one, I mean, you know, friends was huge. ER was huge. Will and grace was huge, but the one that like brought everything. Cause when cheers went off the air, like NBC was like, that's the only one we had. Uh-huh. We're all, we're done now. Um, and then Seinfeld is the one that is the show that like caught on and just, I don't think I quite realized how huge Seinfeld was. I mean, of course I knew it was huge in my life and I knew a lot of people watched it. I did not realize that I think it was like 90 million people watched the finale. Wow. Um, it wasn't mash finale numbers. Um, but it was, it was insane. Uh, and people like paparazzi were jumping the gates of universal to try to get shots of, Hmm. of the Seinfeld finale as they were shooting on like New York street and stuff like that. And it's or CBS Radford. I don't. I don't remember. Anyway, yeah, it's CBS Radford. Not, not that. But that last one, they shot in a lot of different locations oh, okay. on on different lots, and so I don't remember exactly. But, but yeah, um, their their New York Street was at CBS. Yeah, Radford. In fact, that you can see it get bigger over the course of if you watch mm-hmm. Seinfeld. CBS Radford. Yeah, basically to keep Seinfeld kept making a bigger and bigger New York street. So they yeah, could shoot, they could do the, they the did a, race and stuff. They did a lot of stuff to keep Seinfeld. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so I've been watching Seinfeld and just, of course, I'm not going to be saying anything new here. It does not get old and it does not age. Hmm. I mean, some of the fashion things might age, but the character dynamics are so wacky and wonderful and i i love them like you watch friends 
or you watch maybe even maybe even something like Frasier, something where characters actually grow uh-huh. <laughs> and and the way in which they grow can be very rooted in the culture at the time. So when the characters don't grow, yeah, it can be timeless. And I mean, Seinfeld still is still in syndication. It still brings in a surprising amount of money uh, through advertising on you know TBS or whatever network shows it now. Hmm. Um, and that show went off the air twenty years ago this year. It's been gone for twenty years, and it, it it's amazing how much how much that comedy still works, still gets jokes I know are coming. Uh-huh. And I still laugh hard yeah. at them. Yeah. I still, the you know, uh, this is one I've re- I'm sure I've referenced before, but it is such a beautiful delivery. And Kramer tends not to make me laugh that much. Mm-hmm. Um, but when he he uh, <laughs> he's on strike against the post office, um, and so uh, when he shows Jerry that he has basically like filled his own mailbox with bricks so that they can't put any mail in there. And and Jerry goes, where'd you get the bricks? He goes, Jerry, the whole building is made of brick. (laughs) (laughs) And just says it like, it's the most like, wait, did you just destroy part of the building so you could do this? And just no explanation. And then says it like, it's the most obvious thing in the world. Uh, man, it just, it does not get old. And, and as time, the one thing that changes is me and I have come to George is the one that I, well, certainly is the one I relate to the most, but, uh, as I've gotten older, I've come to really love, and I mean, I loved it at the time, of course, but really love what Julia Louis-Dreyfus is doing I, as I Elaine. The same, the I same mean, trajectory of being a George guy. And now I am solidly Elaine is my favorite character. She, man, she's just, she, <laughs> She just hates everybody. I mean, ever they all kind of hate everybody, but she's the one. She has the most bite to like when she's like yeah. taking aim at people. Yeah, and uh, or at herself, or at herself. What am I clinging to? One of the greatest lines. <laughs> yeah. Um, or also like, there's a whole thing where she was like, there's a whole episode where she like throws someone's uh, fur coat out the window, <laughs> yeah. and like in a later episode, there's some brings up like, aren't you bothered by the? Uh, who's got the time? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, that's the thing is early in the show, she was the one with conviction and then they just get, yeah. they just got rid of all that. Oh man, such a, such a marvelous show. And so that led me to then watch a number of, uh, inside looks from the DVDs, uh, oh, yeah. on, uh, YouTube. And one thing that fascinated me is that, uh, one of the writers, Dan O'Keefe, uh, yeah, Festivus was a real thing in his <laughs> life, and his dad created it. And when Dan O'Keefe put it into uh, a show, uh, rather than uh, shame his father for yeah. this stupid thing that he does, his father w- seemed somehow vindicated by it, <laughs> which seems very Frank Costanza to me. Um, and it's, that's, yeah. Man. Speaking of that, we'll get back to, yeah, I know you have another show to yeah. talk about. Um, but, uh, one thing that happens when I watch Seinfeld is I f- I'll forget that, oh, this episode is also that episode. Yeah. Have, so the Festivus one is also the one with Kevin McDonald as um, the uh, denim jacket guy, oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is right. also the one where 
Kramer is on strike from the bagel place that he doesn't work. He's, yes, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It's definitely. And that's right. the one with the two face. Uh, uh, Jerry's dating the two face. Is it also? It's also that one. Um, uh, yeah. Which George is the one that comes up. He goes, "Oh, she's a two face," and Jerry's like, "You mean like the Batman villain?" And George goes, "If that helps you." <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Damn, that show's funny. All right. Okay. Uh, and then lastly, uh, I mentioned it last week. Um, uh, I've continued, I'm continuing to watch Daredevil and it's just, the show's just getting better. It's craft is marvelous. Uh, every season, uh, it's, the show's kind of become known for it. It does this sort of one take hallway fight. And this one, and as you know, I'm not a big fan of long take stuff. I feel like it's showy. I think it's self-satisfied. Um, but if you, if you pack it with enough, if you pack it with enough action and if you really use the fact that the, because when it's one take, that means that there's no breaks and there's no breaks for the actors or the characters. So if you really focus on just how much punishment the main character is taking, Mm -hmm. uh, then it feels right. And that's definitely what they do. And these, this choreography is spot on and all the actors are great because they are exhausted by the end of it. And yeah. that I think is, so that real, sells it. The real oneers. I think Not there's, like, uh, I think there's a couple, there are a couple of hidden cuts in there. Yeah. But there, I mean, it's, it's, it's the, almost um, perfect. I mean, it's, I, I don't hate the one take, long take thing that uh, uh like some people do um uh, sometimes i think it's very effective uh but uh atomic blonde is one that i like but mm-hmm. it is nowhere near one it's, it's there are so many hidden cuts in that did yeah. you ever see atomic blonde no i did well uh it starts in the stairwell goes through the entire apartment building uh yeah there's so many hidden cuts in it, but it doesn't bother me yeah, and this one, and this one, I think, I mean, they are hidden very, very well. I feel like you have to really look for them. And th- thankfully, after a while, um, I'm so engaged in like, shit, this guy cannot catch a break. Where essentially he goes, he infiltrates a prison so that he can like learn information. At which point, it is revealed that the villain uh, knows he's there has paid off uh, like half the guards and a number of the prisoners. And so this guy is not getting out alive unless he fights his way out. And so, and it also kind of feels like a video game at times. Like just when he takes out some here, come two more down the, down the hallway. And it's just a really, it's beautifully realized. And so moments like that combined with really intense emotional moments from the characters, um, they've introduced, I don't, I don't remember how, in how aware of daredevil you are as like the comic book character. Yeah, a little bit. Okay. But the character of bullseye has been introduced. Yeah, and, well, I saw a movie where <laughs> right. Colin Farrell played bullseye. Okay. They're doing very interesting stuff with him. Stuff that is at times a bit ham fisted, but I think it works. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, really just loving this series and I'm only halfway through it. So I'm really excited to finish it.